Even in the face of financial crisis and economic turmoil, we are called to remember those who are hungry. When I finally put away all the thoughtful books and clippings I'd been meditating over for weeks preparing for this sermon today and sat down at my computer to begin to put my thoughts on the page, I had just heard the news on the radio, this was Thursday afternoon, that the administration and the leaders in Congress had come to a provisional agreement about the massive financial crisis we're in. Of course, I was relieved but like the rest of you, I'm sure, too wary to believe more than that for the moment, a big fat thumb had been stuck in the hole in the dike. And as of this morning on my drive down here, the nation and the world are still waiting anxiously for the outcome. Could I, if I had planned it, have conjured up a better time to talk about the hungry and the poor of the world? No, you say, you think it's a bad time with all those huge pie charts swimming around in our heads with taxes, infrastructure, healthcare, education, war, all of them shifting as we watch while the big red wedge labeled bailout threatens to blot out every other consideration, who, even the most compassionate among us, among us would not be shaking his or her head at the thought of tackling the problems of the world's poor today, saying, not now, not now. And yet, though the sizes of the various slices in our personal lives as well as in the larger world are in frightening flux, the size of the pie itself has neither grown nor shrunk. Just as no unit of energy is lost when something dies or explodes, or seems to disappear, but in reality simply returns to the great cosmic soup, what there is to share out in the world is still there. It's only how we color in the sectors that has changed. And you know what the French say about things that change and stay the same. It's not as if we don't know what we're supposed to do. Jesus made it crystal clear again and again that the life of sacrificial love, that is, the life of following him, will have at its heart the desire and obligation to care for the outcast and the marginal, those tax collectors and prostitutes that will go in ahead of us, those who hunger and thirst. We're like the crowd listening to the story Jesus told about the two brothers one who says he won't go out to work but does, and the other who says he will but doesn't. His listeners knew which son was doing the right thing, both according to Jewish law and according to the radical law of love that Jesus was living out in front of them. But it's hard sometimes to get from here to there, from the thing we know we ought to do to the thing itself. This is the way a 20th century poet put it, something I copied out 30 years ago from the back of a pew card at St. Martin in the Fields in London. Knowledge we ask not, John Drinkwater wrote in his famous prayer. Knowledge thou hast lent, but Lord, the will 
There lies our bitter need. Help us to build above the deep intent, the deed, the deed. That concern with the difference between knowing and doing is very much where I've been living for the past few weeks. Not only because of the financial situation, though that's hovered in my consciousness as it has in everyone's, but because I had this sermon coming up. A sermon I knew would have to appeal to our consciences, to our compassion and open-heartedness towards those in extreme need. Yet until very recently, I was aware that my own heart wasn't open on this subject at all. It felt more like this, and it refused to budge. I looked again at the pictures I had cut out from the newspapers of children reaching over each other's shoulders to snatch at chunks of bread, saw the anger and even cruelty in their faces that desperate hunger had brought them to, and turned away with neither anger nor real grief. I didn't know why I was in the middle of this dryness. It's happened before. I'm sure it will happen again. My own life, my personal life, feels satisfying and full. And the thought of the millions who lie down each night in hunger and rise up again hungry in the morning, watching their children weakening before their eyes, just refuse to be anything more than that, a thought, a terrible thought, a monstrous thought, but a thought only, not a feeling. My heart was as dry as an abandoned nest. As Sunday approached, I could feel the anxiety rise. How was my cram-full mind going to be satisfied that I was saying the right words in the in the face of this enormous responsibility? How was my own familiar, shallow heart going to be broken open, at least a crack, so that at last the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ, could wedge its way inside? I read and reread my best and favorite poem, Praying with John Donne, Batter my heart, three-personed God, Bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I began to think it would take some kind of emotional violence, some act of will and discipline on my part to arrive at the truth I knew was out there, to find the right thing to do, the thing God intended for me, and do it. Then driving up Tuesday afternoon, to the clergy conference at the Bishop's Ranch, I listened unusually to the all financial news all the time channel my husband had left on on the radio, so that by the time I arrived, I knew about as much as it was possible for an ordinary mortal to know at that point about just how potentially bad things were. Everything was moving fast, though if I listened to the experts, not fast enough. As I turned off the highway at Healdsburg and headed west through that incredibly beautiful landscape, I asked God to soften my heart during the 24 hours I would be there. I knew it wasn't something I could do for myself. Almost immediately, 
I felt my prayer being answered. Maybe it began when I drove up and waved to a few friends who were sitting in chairs underneath the trees there. You know, between the chapel and the ranch house where many of us will be next weekend. Looking out over the whole valley. It was there in the slowness I could feel envelop me as I climbed the stairs and put my things down in the room I'd been assigned, looking through an apple tree outside the window towards the labyrinth below it, laid out in small round stones. It met me as I joined the others outside for drinks and hors d'oeuvres, a moment I confess I sometimes dread, and recognized with relief a few familiar faces that seemed glad to see me. We all sat down for a simple but generous supper together and had a chance to get back in touch. It was late when our new assistant bishop, Stephen Charleston, which you're really going to like him, he's a full-blooded Choctaw and has a long ponytail. Never saw a bishop like that before. Before he got the chance to begin the first part of his presentation on the theme of multiculturalism, and he won me over immediately by saying he knew that everybody's heart was sinking at the thought of tackling this difficult subject yet again in our diocese. He even confessed that he himself, as a uh, Native American, found the prospect of it just about as discouraging as apparently other minorities do. He's a funny guy. He made me laugh. For the rest of the conference, he said, we would be exploring not multiculturalism or cross-culturalism or any other kind of ism, but the concept of culture itself, what he called the wheels of culture that move inside each one of us. And I'll give you the example. I wish I had a chalkboard or something. But um, he grew, there were, uh, on his presentation, there were four, one at a time, we looked at them, big circles. And the, the um, interior, what was he called the interior wheel, and he said we could make up dozens of wheels. These are the ones he made up. Started at the top with um, information, the information that begins really from the moment of our birth. You know, this is light, this is dark, this is my mother's face, I'm hungry, this is food. And then how gradually that information, because of the family we're in and where we are, uh, leads into assumptions and those assumptions begin to gel into belief. And then the belief is challenged through experience. And so then we come back again to information, which we now take in in a completely different way. In other words, the transformation of the person, of the human soul. There were also an external wheel, a spiritual wheel, and a wheel he called ministry that describes each one of us, lay people and clergy alike, and so on. All these wheels that make each human being, each one of us, who we are. If I seem to digress from my subject of asking God to open my heart, it's because I wanted to show the way that all of this, the change of scene, the renewing of friendships, the exposure to new ideas, the half hour of Teze chanting that evening, the night's sleep by an open window. All of this was emerging as the answer to my original prayer, the prayer for my heart to be softened, as well as for my will to be strengthened for action. 
It was an unfolding gift that I was in the middle of, and I knew it. So that when the next morning, four previously invited men and women stood before us and shared the ways in which their own differences, the unique interactions of their own cultural wheels, had set them apart from other people, had caused them to suffer, to be alienated, but then to grow in grace and the sense of God's love, I wept, and with a grateful heart, knowing that I was receiving their truths at a level I could not possibly have reached without everything, even the long dryness that had come before. I felt myself powerfully part of the body of Christ, the bread of our life broken together, whether in a room above a vineyard in Northern California or in a village on the other side of the world. Bread for the world, the group that the Episcopal Church is a part of that lobbies the powerful Congress that we have elected on behalf of the hungry, was started by Midwesterners. And I like to think of their sense of sharing and abundance as coming from a farmer's table with the whole family seated around along with the hired hands. When it's a good year, there's enough and to spare. And when it's a bad year, there's still enough. Each person just takes less. Someone pointed out recently that if we have three loaves of bread, normally we place one on our table, put one in the freezer for tomorrow, and give one to poor people. The challenge, he said, is to give away the second loaf. This takes us beyond generosity. It is trusting God to, prov to provide for tomorrow's needs. We have no way of knowing what the future will bring. But if, with God's help, we manage to open our hearts, to allow them to be opened in the face of every pressure to close them down, then the grace of God will be there in our midst, always. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley, dot org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.